Thanks, Cathy, for bringing us uh, that reading. Uh, glad that you've got it open in front of you. It'll be really helpful to have it there with you as we, uh, as we look at it tonight. And uh, yeah, we're, we're continuing our series in 1 Peter. So, so you might wonder, particularly if this is your first time uh, with us, gracious, I've come to a church and the first thing they want to tell me is wives and, and submission. And No, no, it's just the next chapter in uh, the book that we're reading. And so uh, we hope that it'll be an encouragement to you. But, uh, and let me say, uh, for the kids who are here tonight, the young ones, we're going to talk about husbands and wives, right? And you're like, it might still be, ooh, uh, yuck, thinking about that as a prospect. What it will do, though, is it'll show us what we should look for in a husband or a wife. And it should encourage our hearts. Uh, but this word is a, is a hard word when we first read it. And there's some reasons why. Um, I think as a, uh, as a church, not particularly here, but the church more broadly, there has been abuse of these sorts of ideas. There have been situations where husbands have not treated their wives as they should. And so there's been failure and disaster, I guess, through texts like this. And so we need to acknowledge that at the start. Secondly, it can cause us to wonder if the Bible isn't a little outdated. I mean, it's 2000 and whatever we're up to now, 19, is that right? It's 2019, these texts were written a long time ago. Um, how on earth can it still be relevant, particularly when it talks about husbands and wives in this way? I mean, seriously, it's 2019, what's going on? We can wonder if the Bible is outdated. Uh, thirdly, we're in an environment at the moment where people assert rights. It's my right to have this. Uh, I need to be looked after and I need to be myself. In fact, to put you before me would be to me making less of me. That actually might be bad for me. I've got to assert myself. And so we kind of have a society that bows to no one and wants to assert its rights. The passage we're going to read tonight will cut against that. Fourthly, we're in a society which has decided that gender is nothing. Male and female isn't really anything other than a choice you could make, depending on how you feel. And so to have a passage that speaks very specifically to husbands and wives is at odds with a society that's decided that we're abandoning the whole idea. Now, they're just some of the challenges. You may have other challenges as you come tonight. I'm going to ask God to help us see the goodness of this word as we get into it. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your living word. We ask, Lord, despite all of the baggage, all of the hurt, all of the difficulties, that you might help us to hear this passage afresh. Thank you, Father, that by your Holy Spirit, you're living and present with us. Reveal your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And as I start, let me remind you, we'll have Q&A afterwards, so write your questions down. Now, we're going to look at four groups, uh, three groups, sorry. We're going to look at husbands, wives, and everyone. So if you're in the everyone category, hang on, it's going to get, we're going to get there at the end. We're also going to start by looking at everyone. In the book of 1 Peter, we've seen that suffering and rejection are the normal expectation for Christians. Roman Christians, this is the people that uh, Peter was probably writing to, uh, are told this, in all of this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. And so we see here that men and women are refined through suffering, men and women together. Yeah, exciting, isn't it? 
It's not a great opening, is it? We're going to be refined together through suffering. But that's what Peter's been telling us. Secondly, we see that sin unites men and women as well. Beautiful verse in 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Men and women have a sin problem, and men and women find a saviour in Jesus. And so we can say together, men and women follow the path of Jesus. Fantastic. Another together. Thirdly, we've seen beautifully, and and, uh, Michael unpacked this for us last week when he preached from chapter 2, we've seen that we have a beautiful new identity. We sang before I am who you say I am. Have a listen to this. It says in uh, 1 Peter 2.5, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now that, that beautiful picture where saints offering sacrifices to God, that is a together activity as well. Men and women are called to worship together. And so you'll be pleased to know there isn't a male and female side to our church although the front's always a little bit empty, that there's not a, a, a male or female, we worship together. But there are some surprises if we go back to this, the context, the first century context for this letter. And so you might not know that in the first century in Rome, there were different ages more often than not in their marriages. Now, I could ask people here, what's the age difference between you? Uh, does anyone have an age difference bigger than five years between the two of them? Joy and Paul. Okay, how many is it, Paul? Excellent, Joy. Six, fantastic. Can anyone push out past six? Okay, has anyone got one that is less than five years? Yes. Um, Less than three years? Less than two years? Yep, one year? Months? Okay, all right. Uh, I think more often than not... That is the norm in our society. It wasn't the norm in the first century. In the first century, there are significant age differences. I'm going to pick that up later. Uh, secondly, we're going to see that they were arranged marriages. Now, we would typically marriage for, marry for love. Anyone planning to do that? Good. Fantastic. Uh, th- that's not the case in all over the world. So uh, I was at work when I used to work at uh, Phillips. I, I still work, by the way, but I, I, I always refer to my former life as when I used to work. Anyway, uh, and uh, my mate Ravi, um, obviously from India, said to me, um, I'm going to get married. We said, fantastic, Ravi. Only one small problem. You don't have a girlfriend. He said, don't worry. My parents are working on it. And we said, okay, fantastic. What, what are you doing? He said, well, they're going to pick somebody in conjunction with another set of parents, and they're going to tell me, and then I'm going to go and meet them. So he hopped on a plane, flew across to India, met his prospective wife, They got on pretty well, and they said, let's do this thing. And so he said, I'm getting married. Do you want to come? And I said, yes. Where's the wedding? He said, in Chennai, in India. And I said, fantastic. So I flew across, and he got married in about five months. Arranged marriages happen. And some of us might save a lot of angst from our teenage years if that had happened. Someone wise says, this is someone good for you. And some parents might be sitting here thinking, I could pick somebody for my... Anyway, they, they still happened, and they happened a lot in the first century in Rome. Thirdly, what that meant was that the church that Peter writes to is very diverse. It's got slaves in it, it's got married people in it, it's got free people, it's even got kids in it. It's a diverse church, and we're again going to see how that works out. I want to say this evening, as we listen to this particular part of the Bible, that we need to hear well what Peter is saying. 
there is a word to wives. There's a word to husbands, and there is a word to everyone. But here's the trick. Husbands, you don't get to pick up the line from the wife and say, ha, I know what you're supposed to be doing. I'm going to make you do it. That's not what it is. It's a word to wives. Wives, you don't get to pick up the husband's word and go, ah, (laughs) well, now I've got something to tell my husband what he should be. That's not how it works. There are words for wives. There are words for husbands. And there are words for everyone. We need to listen well. So what you're going to hear tonight is part of Peter's address for how to live in a contested world if you submit to Jesus. In other words, if you're a Christian in a world that hates you, how should you live? That's what we're going to be looking at tonight. And so we're going to start in chapter 3 with verse 1. I hope you've got your Bibles, if you can open them up. As we do that, I want to tell you what the world of the first century was like. There was a guy called Arius Didymus. Now, that's a great name, isn't it? Uh, I said this morning some more kids should be named that, obviously, these days. But Arius Didymus was a Stoic philosopher, and he advised Caesar Augustus. So he was a pretty uh, august person. And uh, he said about the the household, the Roman household, uh, that there's a monarchy. He says, parents to kids is like a monarchy. They're the kings and queens over their children. Then he says, there's an aristocracy, husbands to wives. The husband rules over the wife like an aristocrat. And then there's a democracy in the home, and that's the kids elbowing each other as peers. It's a very structured, very ordered society. And yet, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 says this, Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives." Now, at one level, you hear that and you think to yourself, oh, that's just saying what the society was saying anyway. But here's the surprising bit. We should be amazed that wives are addressed at all, not because they shouldn't be addressed, but because it was impossible to imagine a Roman household where the wife didn't share the belief of the husband. Husbands and wives all believe the same things. Why? Because if the husband believes it, the wife must believe it. And yet, here's Peter writing to a church and he says, Wives, this is how you should, work, this is how you should act to win over the, Christ, the, the non-Christian husband you have. Do, do you see? He's not in church with her. She's sitting in church because the wonderful freedom of Christianity has come into her life. She's chosen Jesus. She said, I'm going to follow Jesus with all my heart, and she has done something radical. She has broken away from the religion of her husband, and she's sitting in church. And so we should be amazed that she's sitting in church and that Peter writes to her. And so he says, there's a way you should act to win over your non-Christian husband. I want you to see, too, that there's a word for wives and husbands. Just we should note, God recognizes genders. He really does. There there are actually created differences between men and women. And they're not the same word to men and to women. They're different. So what should this wife do? Well, we see this in verses 1 and 2. We see that we should, she should, submit yourselves to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Now, this is worth noting. Submission is, remember who's on the line? Word to the wives. Submission is the wife's offering to her husband. 
if she was a non-Christian, if she was a pagan, she'd be compelled to obey her husband. That's just that's what the world was like. The free Christian woman will offer submission to her husband because she's submitted to Jesus. It's her choice. It's her offering to her husband. And the reason is, the goal is the salvation of her non-Christian husband. And so she does this in such a way that she doesn't cause... <laughs> the whole household to be thrown into turmoil. So she's chosen not to obey the household gods. And I've been reading about the first century religious world. And what it was is all the time there were gods to pray to, spirits to be afraid of, things that you need to do. And so you've always got to be making prayers and offerings to all these gods to try and stay safe. Now you've got a wife choosing to not worship all these gods it's actually, it feels for the husband really dangerous. So, so Peter says, how should you behave? Wife, if you've made the radical individual choice to follow Jesus, you should submit to your husband to help him see that Christianity isn't breaking his home apart. And in fact, what will happen by virtue of your godly, wonderful wife, you will come to see that Jesus is true. And what he says is that they'll be won over by the purity and reverence of your lives. And uh, I just wanted to say, these could not be more outdated words, could they? How many times do we talk about purity? Purity? We're at the absolute tied out of that, aren't we? I mean, our society has just run a million miles away from this. By the purity and reverence of your wives. And so I just want to ask, church, do we ever value these things? But if you see them, they're distinctive, they're beautiful in their own right. And so there's this expectation that she will be an ongoing part of the household, but she'll be acting in such a way that she brings honour to Jesus in her home. And then we go on to the next bit, and this is pretty famous, isn't it? Verse 3, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes. And we all go, oh, come on. <laughs> why can't I have nice jewellery and why can't I have nice clothes? And I'd say to that, no problems. Here's the question. Where does your beauty come from? Have a look at the text. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment. And so what it's saying here essentially is there's a deeper beauty. Do we know people who are all surface and no depth? They might look fabulous, but their soul is an empty cupboard, yes? And what it's saying here is, let your beauty come from your depth, from who you really are. And I, I suspect, guys and girls, that you know and value this already. And I've got a picture of my mum up there, mostly because I miss her, um, but also because my mum was beautiful because of who she was. And you know this. And this is an unfading beauty. It's a beauty based on Jesus and the depth of who you are. And it won't fade once the bottle of whatever you use runs out. It, it, it won't matter. The beauty of who you are inside will remain. And so I think it is important for us to think, we, do we have a beauty? Do we esteem a beauty that's deeper than the surface? And look, guys and girls, in our Instagram world, how can you tell the soul of the person that you look at? We can't, can we? It's only through knowing people, and in knowing people, we can reveal the depth and beauty that's really there. 
It goes on, and it says, rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. And so we put up these words, gentle and quiet, and we think to ourselves, great, no boisterous women. Is that what God wants? Nobody with any personality. What we're looking for is someone to be gentle and quiet. And I want you to see this isn't just a thing for girls. In fact, gentle is something that Jesus says that he is. And Paul says he will be. And it's one of the gifts of the Spirit, so everybody should have it. And men are told to be it in 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's not just a thing for girls. As well as that, quiet, however, quiet speaks to the quiet lives that we're supposed to live. We're supposed to live in a way that will bring uh, honour to the Christian faith. Wives are told to, to learn in quietness in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And then again we see in, uh, in 1 Thessalonians that we're supposed to live quiet lives. The point here is, it's not personality, but a humble spiritual posture that is in view. In other words, women, be vivacious, no problems. Be outgoing, no worries. But do you cultivate a humble spiritual posture inside? That's beautiful, and it's something to be esteemed. God says this is of great worth in his sight, and I would ask, do we ever value these things? We can think about that. Uh, talking about valuing things, these are apparently the most respected women in 2018, at least according to a very brief Google search that I did. <clears throat> but here they are. Uh, do you recognize everyone on the screen? I think there are some truly outstanding women there, some women that I don't know, I assume that they're all worth our respect. At least that's what our world says. The Bible here says that there's someone else that we could look to as an example. Have a look with me at verses 5 and 6. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right. And do not give way to fear. Do you know Abraham and Sarah? You heard of them? She became a mum at what age, guys? Anyone know? Sorry? 99? Pretty good effort. That's pretty worthy of esteem, isn't it? But more than that, we're told here that she obeyed her husband. Now, it's worth saying, in Genesis chapter 12, I'll make you look it up. It's a pretty terrible story, and I think Abraham isn't being a good husband here. But all praise and honour to Sarah, she does what he says. Okay? However, it's worth noting, God tells Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that he should listen to his wife. That's worth noting, isn't it? And she is commended for her own faith as an individual in Hebrews chapter 11. She's a faithful and godly woman. And so what I want you to see, Sarah is a good example for us because she offered her imperfect husband this gift. Her very imperfect husband, this gift. That was what she did out of honour for God. Now it does mention there, it says, you are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. And, and I want to just make the, the point as we close I, on the women that he's not actually speaking, I think, to fear in marriage. Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14, we see, but even if you should suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. I, I actually think he's talking about waiting for Jesus without fear, not fear in marriage. 
you should not be afraid in your marriage. This is not commending you to be afraid in your marriage. And Christian marriages should not look like this because now I'm going to tell you what husbands need to do. I'm going to pick up the line. Husbands, listen in. Future husbands, listen in. Okay, great. In the first century Roman household, there was a thing called the pater familias. And uh, I've got a picture up there of an elephant seal. Why? Because it's a big, dominant presence. Okay, have you guys ever seen these things? They're like as long as the row of seats here. They're, they're just absolutely gigantic. And what it does is it dominates an area of the beach and it fights all other males and it's the head of that area. Now, that is a Roman head of household, right? The pater familias, the father of the family, okay? And they would, ha- they would have the final say in everything. Who's hired, who's fired, money, marriages, everything. They were the head of the household. And I want you to see that when... Peter writes to Christian men, he does not reinforce the fact that they are the last word on everything dominant boss of everyone. doesn't say it like that. In fact, what he says is, in the same way, have a look with me, husbands in the same way. Well, what's the same way? If we look back up to chapter 2, we see the way that he should act. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. What are Christian men supposed to look like? They're supposed to be those who show proper respect, love, fear, and honor. How beautiful as a start. Husbands, in the same way, do this. Now, he has more to say, and so it goes on. We're going to unpack this one verse uh, for the husbands. In the same way, it says, be considerate. Or uh, be considerate as you live with your wives. There's another way of saying it. Um, Live according to knowledge with your wives. You're supposed to know her and care for her. And so I want to ask, husbands, do you know your wives? And you go, yep. Seen her for a while now. Figure I've got it under control. You know how she likes the tea in the morning in bed, which you bring to her. Is that right? Good? Okay, that's a good start. But has knowing her led you to loving her better? Has it led you to serving her better, which isn't saying you do whatever you want for her and ask her to appreciate it? Yes? Has it led you, has knowing her led you to making, not just taking love? Let the reader understand. Are you drawing out her gifts because you know them? Be considerate with your wives is the first thing that he says. He then continues, treat them with respect. Now, I've got a picture up there. Does anyone know the movie? Yes, correct, Ferris Bueller. And what is happening in this picture then? They're about to take a car. Okay, but what about the car? He loves the car. He treasures the car. He wipes it with a diaper. Okay, so here's the thing. This car is treasured. And what I want to say to you men is we have stuff that we treasure, don't we? Maybe we don't have a, whatever it is, 1956 uh, Ferrari convertible. Maybe it's not that. But if you're a guy, perhaps like me, you have something in your life that you treasure and you look after it and you wipe it down and you care for it. And I want to say to you guys, we have this category of care. We really do. And I want to ask you, 
do you put the same care, the same attention to detail into showing honour, into respecting your wife? Does honouring her mean that you speak well of her when she's not around? And I've said across the day that I know guys who always refer to their wife with their wives with a derogatory turn of phrase. Do you know what I'm talking about? I won't use these turns of phrase because I despise them. But they talk about their wife as the, or maybe it's just the wife. Wherever she's not around, they speak derogatory, derogatively of her. Do you speak well of your wife? Do you speak well to your wife? You can't say that you're honouring and respecting her if you don't do that. Do you use words to build her up? Do you use words to build her up? And, as might happen, if God (sighs) tarries in returning, do you slip up? And when you do, do you apologise for words that put her down? Guys, you want to see what respect looks like. It's when you mess up. It's when you get on your knees and you ask for forgiveness because you recognise you've spoken poorly to your wife. Do you apologise for words that put down? He then goes on and says something that has everybody reaching for their Bible to close it. He says, as the weaker partner. Yes, did everyone notice that when I read through? Gracious, groan collectively. What is the Bible so out of date? Can I I give you a little bit of insight on this? I I don't think it's as bad as we immediately think it is. Okay, what if I told you, remember I told you that they had different ages in their marriages? Do you remember that? What what if I told you that the average Roman marriage had a 15-year-old girl marrying a 25-year-old man. In that situation, is it fair to say that there might be some physical difference? And so here, it's not about any sort of inherent inferiority. The woman isn't worse, isn't less of a person, but there are physical differences. And if I'm speaking to a group of guys, I want to say, don't use your physicality against your wife, yes? And so, I want to ask you, do you use your physicality to impose your will? Your voice, your strength. Because we need to know in this church here tonight that abuse of any kind has no place in Christian marriages. Not spiritual, not physical, not verbal, not financial. There's no way that this passage justifies anything like that. And I'll show you why. It's in the very next thing that he tells them. Because who is this wife who God has given you? Because she is an heir with you of the gracious gift of life. There is at the heart of Christianity a fundamental picture of equal worth. If she's an heir with you of Jesus, if Jesus bled and died for her as much as you, there's level ground in front of the cross. How could you possibly mistreat someone that Jesus died for? And so I want to ask you, husbands, do you treat her as an heir, a co-heir of eternity with you? Do you encourage each other in your faith? If she's an heir with you of the faith that we will inherit for all eternity, does she encourage you? Do you encourage her? Is there an equality in your relationship? Do you spur one another on to love and good deeds? And I want to say, and I wish I'd said this this morning, do you make it a safe and joyful thing for her to offer submission to you? 
It's up to you, guys. Why would you do it? You do it because she's precious in the sight of God and she should be to you. And I want you to see one last reason why we should, because it says here that nothing would hinder our prayers and you think, huh, how do prayers get into this? I want to ask you, the, the, the obvious issue is that nothing may hinder your prayers. The idea is that husbands and wives pray together. So I should ask you, do you pray together, husbands and wives? And if you do, there is nothing more beautiful or intimate than that. When my wife lifts my needs up before God, I feel loved. Really, I do. When she hears from you, husbands, your care for her, being lifted up before our Heavenly Father, how much more precious does she feel? Pray together. And, and you're praying, it could be hindered. It says here that that might not hinder your prayers. How could your prayers be hindered? It could be hindered by your relationship. Uh, I have a habit at home to pray with my wife. I decided early on that I would make sure that we prayed together. Good idea. Hey, I'm a... And so I said, here's how we're going to pray. Here's how we're going to build a habit, because habits are better than memory, and memory is better than anything else, a habit. And so what we do is I don't walk out the door in the morning until we've prayed together. So if that's happening, fantastic. But here's the problem. I can't pray when I'm angry with my wife. I can't pray with her. It's such an intimate activity that if I'm not right with my wife, I can't pray with her. Now, if anyone's tried to pray pray with their spouse, you'll know this, or you've offered grudging prayers that aren't probably really beautiful. So here's the thing. I know I'm going to pray with my wife before I walk out the door. So what have I got to do every single morning? I've got to get right with my wife so that I can pray for, so that I can get out the door, right? So here's the awesome thing. If, If something goes wrong in our house in the morning, what I've got to do is I've got to say to myself, suck up your pride, you silly, silly person. Admit that you were wrong. Be made right with your wife that we can sit down and pray together so I can get, no, so so that our marriage may prosper. So your prayers can be hindered by not being in right relationship together. It also says that your prayers can be hindered by God. This This has blown me away. This has been one of the discoveries of the text for me. It says in verse 12, it says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayers. So far, so good. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. In other words, if you do evil in your marriage, God won't hear you when you pray. It's a pretty good incentive to get right with your wife. Now, I said there was a word for wives, there's a word for husbands, there's a word for everyone as well. Have a look with me at verses 8 to 11. Finally, all of you, it feels like finally, doesn't it? Finally, all of you be like-minded Be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. Now imagine if you said to marriages, you need to be like-minded, sympathetic, love one another and compassionate. Don't repay evil for evil. You'd be doing well in marriages, wouldn't you? You'd be doing well in church too. Brothers and sisters, single, widowed, young All of us need to live in this way, not repaying evil for evil, but being compassionate and gracious. Submission to Jesus will change our relationships because we're his holy priests. Live like this. Secondly, we see, just as you always have a first aid kit on hand, we just got a new one the other day, you should be ready for an opportunity when it comes up. Have a look at verses 15 and following. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. 
But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Guys, I could camp out on this one. This would be a sermon in its own right. But here's the thing. We need to be ready all the time, all of us, to give an answer for the hope that we have. And thirdly, at the end of the passage, he says to everyone that we should follow the example of Jesus. And so he says we should suffer as those who are following the one who has won. I really like this when I wrote it. We're following the one who has won. Jesus is in victory now. He died, he went to the dead, he was raised, and now he's sitting at God's right hand. You follow the one who wins. Live like it. So biblical submission that we've been talking about tonight is offering self-sacrifice for another, recognizing God-ordained distinctives. And what that means for us is that all of us will offer submission to who? We'll offer it to Jesus. So we'll lift Jesus up. The wife offers submission by lifting up her husband. The husband offers honor by lifting up his wife. In each case, the lifting up is an act of worship. So what should we do? It's impossible to hear this passage and proudly refuse to submit. We need to submit to Jesus as a start, don't we? It's possible that we need to repent over past failings where we've stuffed this up. We need to repent. And young men and women in the church today, use this passage to consider your future spouse. Wouldn't it be great to have someone who it was a joy to submit to? Wouldn't it be great to have someone who's your wife who is so beautiful that you want to honour her? An internal and beautiful beauty. Lastly, all of us must submit to Jesus in our relationships. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, you are a good God. This word tells us about beautiful families and beautiful homes in a world where Christians were despised. Father, I ask today that we might build households and marriages and a church community that look like this passage. Amen. All right. Not very much happening in that passage. Thanks, Annabelle. Are there questions that people have that I can reflect on, help you clarify things that would be useful to ask a follow-up on? Yep, Alec. Um, in the beginning of chapter 3, and then when it says wives, and then later in verse 7, it says husbands, where it says in the same way. Yeah. So are both of those referring back to everything that's come before or just back to where chapter 2, 18, where it says slaves in reverent fear? Yeah, so I, I think it's 16 and 17, uh, particularly 17, show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honour the emperor. In the same way wives, in the same way husbands. I think that's what's going on. Does that make sense? Alec, come back to me. You've got an alternative theory? I think that's what's going on. So I think that's the thing we share. We share respect and honour for everyone and we express it according to the relationships that we find ourselves in. Does that make sense? Someone else? Yeah, Cathy. 
you mentioned the background to the type of marriages and the type of settings that they had in that time. Hmm. And Peter was speaking with that yeah. in, not in mind. So my question is, and I know you're not going to have an answer, is like, if he knew our background, would he speak the exactly same? Exactly the same way. I guess it's that, you know, there's those whole cultural things of, of how much was that... Um, for the time. For the time yeah. versus what elements are for the time and what elements are forever. Now, you know my own view in terms of I believe that he is a God-ordained order in, in marriage. But hmm. with what you were putting in the background, it sounds hmm. like that's a specific um, encouragement yep. to people who lived in that sort of way, and I can understand that. Yep. But I would say then, okay, if Peter was speaking to us... Yeah, would you say the same thing? Yeah, and how would he put those things in? I, I think it's a great question, Cathy, and it's what we need to wrestle with every time we come to the Bible. Uh, I've, been, I've been really thinking about this. Is this actually a word for today as well? I think it is, as you, as you said, Cathy. And, and the reason I think we can see it is it's countercultural to the first century. It actually tells the wife she shouldn't do it because it's what society does, but it's an act of her worship to Jesus. So she submits out of worship to Jesus. It tells the husband he must do something that no pagan husband would do. He must honour and lift up and serve and respect his wife. That's totally countercultural. And so what I want to suggest to you is it, it's, actually, it's actually challenging to first century culture. It's still challenging today. And I think the question we have to wrestle with is, if you were to say it's only bound to this time, um, then it would say, I'd say it's radical for that time. It's different and radical today. But if you want to keep chasing along, my, my observation would be, remember the Brady Bunch? Right? That was really cutting edge when it came out. When we look at it now, we see all sorts of societal stereotypes still in it, don't we? So at one level, if you say it's just for this time, then, then as soon as you do that, you've got all sorts of challenges. I actually think this steps out of being bound in time. It was challenging then. It's challenging today. I actually think it's helpful for us to keep hearing it because it challenges the way our society is set up even today. And, uh, yeah, so a uh, long answer, Cathy. I think there's stuff in here that absolutely transcends just the time because it was challenging them and it's challenging today. Other questions? There will be. If you need more time to process, please... Oh, yep, down the front, Tim. Uh, I've, I've said to people, if you use... So, well, the microphone's coming down. If you've got a question that I haven't answered and you want to reflect on it, please write down the Care and Connect card and I will get back to everyone who does so. Tim... I was just thinking about teaching it to, to younger people, particularly teenagers and things like that. That's a good thing to be thinking about, Tim. how it speaks into the world of, of dating, particularly in, in Christian circles, you tend to sort of date someone and know... I can't think of many men that would expect or demand that their girlfriend submit, but they would at the same time potentially end a relationship because they don't see those qualities uh, in their, their relationship... I wonder how much does this speak into that sort of environment or is it, is it something that we should really mostly be addressing in marriage and not so much in dating and singleness and so on? So Gracious forth. me, I look forward to coming along to New Life Youth to find the answer to that, <laughs> uh, to that question. Look, I, I, think, I think Christian dating is incredibly fraught and uh, we, we're going to get there, guys. Really, we are. Um, and we need to think this stuff through really well. Um, I, I think you want to be finding the character of your prospective spouse through dating um, and that will be revealed through spending 
godly, useful time together, rather than isolating yourselves for all sorts of physical indulgence, which I think is the way the world does it. So I actually think we want to see our dating relationships happen amongst family, amongst friends, with kids, in Bible study. I think we need to start doing the fullness of life with one another in order to see character revealed, because that'll be the thing that lasts. So, so yes, it informs it, and yes, there's much more to say, which is why I recommend everyone gets along to New Life Youth with um, Michael and uh, co uh, there. Is there one more question? I'm going to stop. I'm sure that's more than enough. Come find me at supper. I'm happy to talk further. Thank you.